0: Welcome to the PeaceCast, where justice and peace meet. A podcast from the Fellowship of Reconciliation, presented by John Cooper. Hello and welcome to the PeaceCast. If I said to you, picture a nun, what images might come up in your mind? Maybe a quiet woman, mainly clothed in black, quietly shuffling around some cloisters. Or maybe cycling through East London, quickly delivering babies and a quick moral message. Or maybe even it's Whoopi Goldberg teaching a convent how to sing with some real swing. Well, they're all valid ideas, but today's nun is nothing like any of those. She has a powerful and compelling ministry that has seen her commit her life to God through acts of witness, protest and just the occasional arrest. So it's with real great pleasure that I welcome Sister Katrina Alton from the Order of St. Joseph of Peace to the PeaceCast. Welcome, Katrina.
1: Thank you, John. It's good to be with you.
0: Before we get into a bit more about your current ministry, I'd love to hear a bit more about your journey. I know for many years you were living what you called a conventional life. What was that itch or moment that began to nudge you away from that into your new life and vocation as a nun?
1: Well, I guess I began to realize that it's very easy to go with the flow, to be dragged into the mainstream. And as a committed Christian, you know, at various points in my life, I've stopped and taken stock and realized I'm not living my life any differently to any other good, committed person trying to make changes in the world and, you know, care for neighbor. But I think as Christians, we're asked for more than that. We're asked to let go of all our ego, our pride, our desire for success, power, in worldly terms anyway, and I guess it was becoming a Catholic that really made me stop and think about how I was going to live that huge change in my life. Having grown up as a Protestant in Northern Ireland, um, even the step of becoming a Catholic was huge for me and for my family, so I didn't take that lightly at all. And I guess I was just inspired by this huge Catholic tradition, which was so new to me, but also a commitment to living in community with people I wouldn't choose and probably who, if you asked them, wouldn't choose me either.
0: And... In terms of growing into that community, you mentioned that you grew up in Northern Ireland, where obviously religious communities get tied up with all sorts of other questions and issues. What made you want to recommit to, in some respects, living in a religiously defined community?
1: I'd already lived in an experience of living with the Larsh community in London, um, and I'd been part of the London Catholic Worker too. So I guess that call to live out The gospel in terms of social action and social justice was very much at the heart of my vocation. And to be quite honest, when I felt that itch to religious life, I couldn't ever imagine finding somewhere where I would fit. By this point, I already had a criminal record for civil disobedience. So I had all these stereotypes about vows of obedience and celibacy and You know, it didn't sit easily with me as a feminist. Um, But when I did discover the Sisters of St. Joseph of Peace, I really felt like I'd come home. And when I discovered their website, I read one of the sisters' stories. I just clicked on this little icon and and read Sister Miriam's story. And it said, "Uh, Sister Miriam is currently in prison having cross-line at the School of the Americas, aged 80. I was like... Okay, I think I can journey with these women if they'll say yes and journey with me.
0: So in terms of that journey, obviously you don't just wake up one day and that's it, you're a nun. You've got your sort of time of formation. I know that you sort of started that and then two days later were out taking part in the Ash Wednesday situation. So already getting into trouble, but I would say holy trouble because you were simply following the story you'd read on the website In that longer time, though, what did you discover about yourself and this calling beyond sort of postcard activism?
1: Yeah, I I think religious life, in some ways, we have a very privileged time in that initial formation. It's a stepping back, it's a taking stock. The novitiate year in particular is a a time when we move out of ministry and it is a whole year of prayer and reflection. And you were accompanied in that year by um, someone who has been living religious life for a substantial number of years, who journeys alongside you. And I think during that year, you end up having to look yourself firmly and squarely in the mirror because all the things that you usually hide behind are gone. So you don't have your job type or you don't have your roles, you're, you're not, you don't have any
0: distractions so, what was the most unsettling part of that mirror year then?
1: That I put a lot of stock by those titles and that status. And that I think initially I'd come into religious life with a focus of what I could do. And it became very clear that call to be. And it is who God uniquely calls me to be as a sister. That plays a little part, my little jigsaw piece, the Katrina Alton shaped jigsaw piece that the kingdom of God needs. You know, I have to find the right shape at the right time so that you find your right shape at the right time and we each find our right time. And it's not, for everyone, it's not religious life, obviously. For everyone, it's not Catholicism. Or the faiths, people of no faith. But I really believe that together we enable the kingdom to come in its fullness.
0: And in those eight years, what, what new part of you did you discover? If a lot of it was shedding, then there must be new things growing up.
1: Yeah, I, I guess I had this little fantasy that I would go in I do my time, as it were, <laughs> in formation, and come out and sort of go back to my Catholic Worker friends and do Catholic Worker type stuff, and and some of that has been true. But um, during the novitiate, as I realised how difficult finding it to peel off these layers, I felt a call to train as a, a counselor, as a therapist, um, which was very new. And I guess part of that also came from having done some work alongside refugees and asylum seekers. So we shared our, our home with those who had no recourse to public funds and who were you know, going through this nightmare of years and years of fighting the prejudice and racism of our asylum system and just realising that some of their trauma and some of the pain they'd experienced was triggering some of the traumas I'd experienced back in Northern Ireland, but had never really dealt with. Mm. Because as a child, if you grow up in a place where there's violence and conflict and warfare, that's all you ever know. Um, And in Ulster, we're very good at making a joke about everything. You know, our defense mechanisms are very, very good. Um, We're very good at, you know, we called it the troubles. We lived through the Troubles. It's a strangely yeah, British response. The Troubles response is when the car doesn't
0: stop. Yeah, we, 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 we can't call it what it is, which was in effect a civil war, and instead we give it this very polite afternoon tea title of the Troubles. And so you're discovering all of these things, and yet somehow after eight years, that's it, you decided you were ready to to take your vows. Now, people <laughs> who are eager online can uh, watch your service on, on YouTube, but talk us through actually what that, what that felt like?
1: I guess formation is, is a bit like a very long dating process you know initial formation you've not made any big commitment you're sort of dating is this going to work um, when you make your first vows you know that that's I suppose like getting engaged in it's a very traditional model but when you make your life vows it, it is a lifelong commitment and you, you step into that with the hope and and praying for the grace that that it will be for life. But it's a mutual decision. So as well as me saying yes to that, the congregation discerns and says yes to that too. You know, is this right for me? Am I coming freely? Um, You know, I I think in the past, women entered religious life um, as, as a way of fulfilling some big hopes and some big dreams, you know, if you came from a working class, poorer family, maybe the only way to to fulfill your potential, your academic potential, was to enter religious life, so and sometimes we have unconscious fantasies and biases about why we're doing something, so hence that period of, of really untangling, is this really a call from God, and testing that out along the way by living in different communities, having different ministry experiences, making time for prayer and retreats. So when I felt ready to do that, it was very important for me to do that in my parish, for that to be a public witness of my yes to God. And I'm very blessed to be part of a really lovely parish in Nottingham, who said yes to my life profession. They'd never done that before. They didn't know what they were getting themselves into. So, the youth diocese team um, did music for us. If you watch the video, all credit to them, music is amazing. Uh, the parishioners um, helped with the flowers, the decorations, the welcoming. I pushed every Catholic boundary you can push in terms of having women read the gospel and women preach and, you know, just do all the things that one day please god will just be normal and then we have a parish school and and the school hosted the party afterwards which was wonderful and, you know the kids sang and danced and and made it a real a real celebration but, but the the piece of scripture i chose for that was um the verses from micah when, when micah talks about you know not only will we beat our swords into plowshares but one day everyone will live in peace and plant their own vines and fig trees and vines and fig trees take a long time to grow so you have to plant them with faith and hope that 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 peace will last and maybe not if the fruit may not come in your lifetime but maybe in your children's or (laughs) great-grandchildren's lifetime.
0: And that idea of peace is really central to you and your vocation. You've publicly spoken before about Jesus, the non-violent leader, as being a key person for you. So what is it about peace and non-violence that really fires you up inside?
1: I guess it it does go back to my from growing up in Northern Ireland, where um, you were really only offered two options, fight or flight, um, so you either got involved in in the armed struggle and children where i grew up would you know be offered money and and things to to run guns for people and and do messages for paramilitaries and things one of the reasons my parents decided to move to England because they were really scared that me and my brother would get caught up in all this so if you like we did the flight bit we were lucky enough to have family in England to be able to come and move and live with. But once I was out of that situation, looking in on it, as a teenager, I remember thinking, why can't people just sit down and talk? You know, this was the 80s, and Sinn Féin as a political party was silenced. You'd watch the BBC and a voiceover to tell me what an elected politician had said which just seemed absolutely ridiculous because at the end of the day, any conflict, whether it's, you know, on a one-to-one personal level, in a family, in a community, in an organization, in the country, in the end, we have to come down and sit and talk with one another to resolve that. And I think Jesus shows us another way of doing this, a way that isn't, a violent reaction of oppression and hatred, which is always, which always comes out of fear, the fear of the other, fear of the unknown. Neither is it this flight, which also can come out of fear, which can be either a, well, I'm all right, I'm, I'm safe, so I, I will ignore what is happening to these other unfortunate people. Or the flight can be, um, I'm disinterested, I'm disengaged. But Jesus shows a different way. He says that there's a third option here, there's a middle way here. But you know what? It's actually harder than the other two options put together because it doesn't get results quickly. It takes imagination and creativity and a sense of humor and a little bit of drama and a little bit of putting yourself
0: on the line. And I think it's true to say that now you've taken your vows, your ministry has very much has seen you physically as well as sort of verbally putting yourself on the line a few different times. So I know that you've begun to research and discover more about the, the weapons manufacturing that happens quite near to you. And I think I understand you, you take you lead a form of action there. So what and how did you discover and what do you now do?
1: For a number of years, I've been involved with the Stop the Arms Fair campaign, which happens every couple of years to try and stop the Dice the Arms Fair in London. Um, And when I was there in 2017, I had literally just moved to Nottingham. And as ever, the spirit blows where she blows. And a friend came rushing over to me and said to me, I've just met this woman who said, I wish there was somebody to do Things like this within Nottingham because we have the gun factory. I was like, okay, let me meet this said woman. So yeah, we we met, we exchanged emails, and um, she's Christian. She's from the Methodist tradition, and together we just spent time together getting to know one another. Firstly, which is really important. I would always say if you're going to get involved in doing any direct action really get to know the people you're doing it with so you've got trust and support. And we prayed together and tried to discern next steps. It was just two of us and it was a bit scary, really. But we just decided, OK, let's make some banners. We discovered that the, the actual arms factories, heck, and make guns and ammunition and top, top-notch firearms, they're on the Nottingham tram line. So we decided if we made some quite large banners and stood with these banners, people on the tram would at least know what was happening because trying to find anything about this factory is really difficult. But this one unit has no signage at all. And when we got there, we were like, are we in the right place? And then Kerry looked up and she said, I look, Razor wire and loads of CCTV. You know, <laughs> they are not making children's rattles, are they? No, <laughs> they're certainly not. So yeah, we we decided that once a month we would go and witness and stand there, and, and we just made some little flyers, little leaflets. We just hand them out to anybody um, or, or younger people, particularly. With, are you joking? <laughs> Is this some sort of spoof? Mm. And we were like, no, you know, Google it. It was it was the local people who then said to us, so what can we do? Have you got a petition we can sign? So we then created a petition um, that people could sign, and um, and over the over the months we've we've done it. You know, various months, other people have joined us. Other activists, Christians have joined us.
0: So it sounds like you've 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 met new people. You've sort of almost unveiled the elephant in the industrial estate, hidden in plain sight. But earlier on in your vision of what it means to follow Jesus, the Prince of Peace, you did talk about dialogue and conversation. Are you aware that you've spoken with anyone who works in the factories? There been anything like that, or is it more a witness just to highlight it's there?
1: The witness and the dialogue didn't quite go as we'd originally anticipated. So we contacted the factory to tell them what we were about to do and heard nothing, which was no big surprise, really. But beside this unit is a large church, a large evangelical church, and they actually objected to us, vigiling outside, take our banner down and asked us not to. They were just very uncomfortable with us being there which we were really taken aback at we weren't asking them to agree with us so or join in but we were really quite taken aback that they were quite happy to have a gun factory as their next door neighbour but they weren't happy to have at the, uh, the i think the most we ever had on a vigil was 10 people <laughs> standing in the shivering rain with some placards you know, a prayer sheet, some rosary beads and leaflets, and they found that offensive. So actually, the dialogue with them proved to be the most challenging at one stage because they didn't feel they could meet with us. And we had had messaged them initially to say, we are going to be doing this and heard nothing. And to this day, we've never actually managed a face-to-face meeting with them so that reconciliation it did happen through email but it it, it it wasn't comfortable um and and i think that's just the nature of being willing in this way that for a lot of christians and we see it so i mean it, it's writ large if you look at the situation in america right now it's writ large that so many christians do not see the Jesus I'm describing as the Jesus they want to follow on a journey of downward mobility, a Jesus that takes you to the margins, a Jesus that says to you, you know what, you need to live simply so others can simply live. You need to put down your sword and plant the vineyard cost you but it will ensure that your children's children have a life and a sustainability and a quality of relationship and encounter that we are damaging day after day here.
0: And you're hinting at one of the other sort of branches for no pun intended that of your ministry you know you're committed to following a prince of peace and yet here you are out with Extinction Rebellion so What made you not just stay in the sort of traditional anti-arms trade, no-weapons piecework to actually go broader and and look at the climate conversations going on around us?
1: I think two things, really. I think the school strikes, and there was a huge school strike here in Nottingham, really were a challenge. I mean, I've been very aware of the climate um, emergency for probably 30 years, nearly, and yeah, I've made some personal changes. I choose not to drive, I choose not to fly. You know, I've made personally come very, very clear that this now needs real systemic change and that our governments are failing time and time to take action, you know, ignoring the Paris Agreement and all this all these things. So I would give credit to the school strikers, definitely to really prompting me to get out of my comfort zone on this. And then I think just extinct rebellion just took me by surprise. I'd, I'd read and heard some stuff about how they were gonna try and do things at the first rebellion. And to be honest, I was a bit, cool and a bit cynical. I was like, I'm not sure this is gonna work because as a peace activist for 20 odd years, you know, if you get six people and a dog at an event, you're very, very proud of yourselves. And for them to have hundreds and thousands of people in London at that first rebellion, people, and this is the thing people willing to risk arrest. So, yeah, I've been at lots of peace events where you can get 100 people. But I know in 2009, at the Dicey Arms Fair, in terms, particularly in terms of Christians, I think it was four of us who got arrested that year.
0: So I have to ask, how do the police react when it turns out they've just arrested a nun?
1: They don't always know. <laughs> <laughs> they don't always know because usually I'm just in jeans and T-shirt like everybody else. And when I'm asked my name, I just say Katrina. But at the last arms career, I did choose to wear a veil, mm-hmm. which I don't normally wear. I did choose to, to wear that, a visible witness that... Sisters are at this arms fair um, protesting, just as some of my brothers and sisters in the Methodist, Anglican, Baptist tradition choose to wear their clericals, or if they're in religious orders, some of some of the males choose to wear their their cassocks and habits. You know, and I know these people don't walk around Tesco's dressed like that, and and because it, we need to be visible, people need to see them. We are willing to put into action the things we talk about. experience was I wasn't treated any differently apart from, I have to, I will confess, the desk sergeant, when I got to the police station because I was handcuffed, he took one look at me and then looked at the young arresting officer and said, get those handcuffs off her now. And then sort of looked at me and said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and he'd had a very, very good Catholic education. Wow. Um, and, and he did, he just, he, he could see beyond the veil. He, he was sort of seeing people and he was saying to this young officer, you know, my experience with these people is, you know, they do what they do and they take responsibility for what they do. So you don't need to cuff them. They're not going to run away. They're not going to, you know, resist arrest. But I am conscious that it gives privilege, and how do I use that privilege? Mm. Hence, Mm. not usually wearing the
0: veil. It also gives you support, though, doesn't it? You know, you're not just Katrina. You're part of a, a convent of of three there, and part of a order, I guess, spread all around at least the UK, if not the world. How does that? Support and either strengthen you, or what does it mean to be part of that wider group when you carry out these actions and the campaigning?
1: Well, I think most activists will tell you if you're going to risk a rash, you need to be part of an affinity group. You need to have created a network of solidarity because anything can go wrong, and things do go wrong. And I, I what I love about the peace world is that. The diversity of people who work together for actions like this is amazing. So the Quakers, if you're thinking about the arms fair and Dicey, the Quakers are always there in huge numbers. But every every Christian tradition, and certainly at the last arms fair, it, it wasn't a faith event, which was beautiful. So I think it's really important that we show the face the side of Christianity that we're striving for because of visions within ourselves. I mean, the world looks at us and thinks we're crazy. I mean, not that I think, I don't want us to be the same. You know, I, I think it, it's like finding a comfortable pair of shoes. You know, if your shoes are Quaker or Methodist and mine are Catholic, that's fine. As long as comfortable where we are and we're happy to journey together, that's the important bit and respect one another and learn from one another. And I think in the activist world, that's that's what happens, that over the years, the Quakers, the Catholic Worker, Pax Christi, F.O.R., Fellowship of Reconciliation, all these people have come together and have inspired one another, encouraged one another, prayed, cried, laughed together. And that's really important in this.
0: And I think it is, it's those glimpses of the kingdom where we are walking alongside each other that really help give, give strength to others. And I think sometimes shine a bit of a mirror back at other elements of the peace and other movements, which can become painfully sectarian from whatever their points of unity are, their differences suddenly become more important. Mm -hmm. And certainly I'm hopeful within the Protestant church sphere that, uh, the Pope's latest encyclical will really start the wider church thinking, hmm, if he can spend time looking at war, peace, just war, and the whole of creation and economics, maybe we need to get back on our books again. And that sort of positive dialogue can be such a rich space. We've covered a huge amount. There's a strange air of almost glamour to what you describe, but I somehow get a feeling. That everyday life as a nun can't just be sort of pickets, placards, arrests, powerful actions. What does your average day look like?
1: Well in a pandemic like most people's average day, (laughs) you know, in in front of Zoom screens, I I don't think there is an average day. There are some things that have remained the same during the pandemic and and are constants in our lives. So Um, In my community, we pray together, we eat together and they're they're two core parts of our day because that coming together to pray and reflect is so important um, to sustain us on this journey and to share a meal, Mm -hmm. to break bread together is really important too. My days vary. I do some spiritual accompaniment with people and that tends to be younger adults who are struggling to stay with the churches, um, particularly women, young women who are, find it very hard to find their place in the church. I do quite a lot of spiritual accompaniment. I do things like this. Occasionally I ask to talk to people about peace activism and, and various things. Um, and I do some work within the congregation as well. We, we produce a magazine and I'm on the editorial board for that. And we've now got somebody somebody else entering with us. So um, I've been asked to accompany her as she begins this journey. So uh, that, that feels really um, a real privilege to begin to walk alongside somebody who's starting the journey I started eight, nine years ago.
0: And I'm just trying to begin to imagine the types of conversation and the prayers that you share. So without wanting to sort of cross any boundaries, are you all sisters who are out on the streets protesting? Or does each peace ministry look very different within this order? I
1: think if you go, go to our website, you'll realise that we've we've got we've had a very rocky start. Um, we were founded by um, Margaret Anna Cusack, who herself had been a Protestant. From, the, from Ireland, became a Catholic, was a poor Clare nun, so an enclosed nun. And uh, during the famine could see could see the violence of poverty. Mm-hmm. The violence of poverty that was literally crucifying the poorest of the poor And she said, I can't sit here and talk about what should be done. I need to leave the convent and do what needs to be done, especially for the poorest and especially for women. But she was very outspoken. She was a feminist. And she got on the wrong side of the bishops. Well, the bishops got on the wrong side of her. I don't know which. And basically after four years, so she founded us as a new order to work in the inner city. She founded us here in Nottingham to work alongside women. So our early sisters would have been going into people's homes, obviously before the NHS, to offer healthcare. We started schools so that the poorest children could access at least primary education. And we did some catechetics and and spiritual teaching, but that was our early peace ministry. But Margaret Anna had to leave us after four years because the bishops got so angry and her outspoken nature that they basically said no new people could join. If nobody can join your order, you will die. So she stepped aside and she basically said, you know, if this is of God, it will continue. And we have continued and we have met the needs as they've been presented to us. So the early sisters were nurses and teachers. In the 80s, one of our priorities was to work with those affected by the HIV AIDS pandemic. So some of our sisters retrained um, doing things like alternative therapies to walk alongside that community. And our latest priorities have been to be in solidarity with migrants and refugees. So um, in New Jersey, we have a house of hospitality, which is accommodation to women who are struggling to get their papers. And we're trying to start a similar project here in Nottingham, where we'll live alongside those who have no recourse to public funds. So our commitment to peace through justice isn't something... That you know, we agree once and for all. As the world changes, we need to change. We need to respond and use our resources. And we're blessed that we have convents, we have, you know, we have some resources to do new things, but not alone anymore. You know, gone are the days where 20, 30 sisters would start a new project. Nowadays it's it's doing things with other religious or Of the denominations but the thing that doesn't change I would suggest is our commitment to be women of prayer because without that it was Dorothy Day who said without prayer all the rest is useless all the rest is useless and we have to be grounded in the God we claim to follow we have to surrender our time, our energy for that that love that unconditionally first loved us. And it's not all glamorous. We all get on each other's nerves. And in a pandemic, show me a family that hasn't had days. We've had bad days. But I think part of our witness is to show that people of different ages and backgrounds and ethnicities can come together and can live together and, and can build community. And it, and, it, and it's an intentional community, so it takes work. It doesn't just happen. You know, you have to be committed to getting to know one another, to praying together, to supporting one another. When things go wrong, to really go through processes of reconciliation, to, to find that peace again when when you've hurt somebody by some silly flippant comment or when there's sometimes big disagreements about ways forward so no our lives aren't always glamorous at all there are hard times and you know religion in, in the northern hemisphere the number of sisters who are aging and dying are not being replaced at the same pace by newer people coming in so we are we are becoming this little remnant, I believe. But I believe it's we're being called to do something new. So we're letting go of the big convents and the big properties and all these big things we did, which may maybe at the time were a good thing. But now taking ourselves to the margins to be at the edge of things and to do that um, in a way that maybe other people can't because People say to me you know how do you risk arrest well first of all you pray about it you learn but i i have a i have the privilege of not having dependence in the same way so many other pieces of this have you know if you've got a job that's not going to be sympathetic to you getting arrested if you are a carer for children or you can't maybe be risking arrest right now but as religious, I would argue, with the very ones who should be at the forefront of this, because we have got a support network that maybe others don't have. And I, I think it, it's our call, certainly for us as Sisters of St Joseph of Peace, it's our call. It's at the essence of who we say we are.
0: Finally, our, our listeners always want to know what they can do. So for you... What's the first step on a road to spiritual activism and peacemaking that you'd encourage our listeners to take? Pray,
1: pray, 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 pray. And then and by pray, I mean, listen, prayer isn't words. Spend time in silence with God and reflect on that thing that breaks your heart. That issue that makes you, yeah, literally breaks your heart, gives you sleepless nights is worrying at the back of your head and that's where God is calling you to be because if it doesn't break your heart you will become very bored very frustrated very very quickly but if it's the arms trade that you think if we could break this system we would create great change if it's the climate emergency if it's mental health food poverty these are all forms of abuse violence whatever it is, take that first step and connect with somebody else because he else is doing something. There might only be one or two people, but make those connections, build those relationships. You know, the, you might think, well, I don't know much about the arms trade, or I don't know much about the climate emergency. You don't need to know, there's no exam for this, <laughs> but get to know people, begin that dialogue. Create those relationships and then see where God will lead you. Because if you're willing, you will, the will, doors will open. Even in a pandemic, doors will open. And there's a lot of amazing things happening now online, which are bringing us all together in a way that maybe before, um, you know, depending where you are in the country, people were in their little bubbles. But now there's there's a unity of movements, which is amazing.
0: Katrina, thank you so much for all that you've shared today. You've uh, very much lifted the veil on what it means to live life as a nun today, but in a way that I think will leave us all mulling more on our secular as well as religious callings to create that life of justice and peace and, and build it up. Now, if you've been inspired, you can find Katrina either out on the streets of Nottingham. Do look up and consider joining her outside the um factory or you can find her connecting with digital communities on twitter at sister katrina csjp or you can find out more about the wider order at csjp.org katrina thank you once again thank you john thanks for listening to the peace cast a podcast from the fellowship of reconciliation Presented by John Cooper, produced by Jack Woodruff, and edited by MIDI Media. If you've enjoyed it, please like, review, and share on social media. And follow us at The Peacecast.